the greatest privilege of our lives to know you and to be known by you. And so we thank you for this morning, uh, this day of rest that you have appointed to your people. We know, Lord, that we are joined with so many other of our brothers and sisters across the city, the state, this country. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would bless your people as they gather together to worship your Son on your day. We ask that you would drive far from us the fears and difficulties and anxieties of this world. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are hindered because of sadness or illness, difficulty. Lord, bless them. Uh, Uplift them with your spirit. And Lord, for all your people, we ask that you might give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up in your word this morning, in your supper, and in the prayers and songs of your people. Lord, we pray for this congregation in particular, that you would continue to bless it, Lord, not only with numbers and provision, but with holiness. That This might be a body known by each other, by this community, by their neighbors, that they might be known by their love, that the love of Jesus Christ might overflow in their hearts, in their words, in their actions, in their deeds. Lord, that the gospel might go forth in power in this city, that you would constrain the nations to come in your pity, that all of your people might be gathered together in houses like this one on your day, that people might praise you and know you and have life everlasting that comes only from our great Savior, in whose beautiful name we pray, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, greetings. My name is David Schecksneider. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you here this morning. Some of you I know well, some of you I'm getting to know better, but it's a pleasure all the same. I think, and I could be wrong, but I think I was here for the first service six years ago in Casa Grande when it was at the, the school. I'm trying to remember exactly where it was, but it's been a pleasure to know you, to be praying for you all for many years. Um, Chris joked uh, that six months ago, actually, six months ago, a couple days ago, we started Providence Presbyterian Church in Scottsdale, and he joked uh, that we were copying you. Uh, the answer is not far from that. And I, I mean that as an encouragement. Um, uh, the last thing that our Savior did before he left was he gave us uh, a job to do. He said, go out to all the nations and make disciples. And uh, that means planting churches. And I don't need to tell any one of you that that's hard work. Uh, that it's actually a life, a life that consumes your relationships and your jobs and, of course, your church. And it's, it's always easier to, to gather together in a single place. But God has called us to go out and to plant churches, to make disciples, to raise up new communities of faith. And so for the past six years, as you guys gather together, and I mean this as a sincere encouragement, you are not only a light unto the nations but unto the church. Your work in planning a church here is an encouragement to all of your brothers and sisters in Tucson and Scottsdale and Phoenix. And we do uh, follow in your footsteps in a very real way. I hope that's an encouragement when you're filing paperwork, when you're mopping floors, when you're gathering together, that you are uh, helping to lead the church. And that's a really blessing to all of us. Uh, greetings to you from, from the church. We do pray for you regularly. We're thankful for your ministry, for your friendship. Uh, we look forward to that day when we are gathered together in a place without any distance or separation, but for now, we, we pray for your ministry here. Um, with all those greetings in place, let me read uh, the passage that I'm preaching from this morning from the book of Philippians, um, chapter 2. Um, yeah, oh, no, 3, thank you. <laughs> I'm actually, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm driving down to uh, Tucson to preach at our Tucson church, Covenant OBC, who also prays for you and loves you. Um, and I'm preaching from Philippians 2 in the evening. So I've got my sermon straight, I promise. We're in Philippians 3. 
Uh, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Now, uh, you will forgive me for not picking a Christmas verse. Of course, it's wonderful this time of year to think on the incarnation, to see it in the word of God, uh, to be cherished by God drawing near to us in Jesus Christ. So uh, rather than the whole sermon, I, I will start off my introduction. will be a Christmas introduction, so at least we'll get it in a little bit. I was thinking this week, as we were doing all of our family work, driving around, preparing, we have a Christmas Eve service, we have a Christmas party at our house, and so as I'm buying garlands and cranberry sauce and presents for the kids, I started thinking this week just how much of my time and energy goes into Christmas, probably a lot of yours as well, and I think one of the things we've all noticed is that Christmas is increasingly about stuff, right? We as Americans, we love stuff a great deal. I was looking it up. The average individual will spend $400 on Christmas gifts probably this year. Well, that was a statistic for last year. The average family last year spent $1,000 on Christmas presents, which is the average salary for one week. I mean, it took an entire week of working for us to pay for all the stuff we get. Last year, America spent $859 billion on Christmas stuff. And it is very likely that this will be the first year in human history that we have spent over a trillion dollars on Christmas stuff. Now, that's not to say that it's wrong. I didn't come down to Casa Grande to tell you not to give presents to your kids, to not celebrate Christmas, to do anything like that. But even in this really blessed season, where in, in malls and in doctor offices you hear songs singing about Jesus, we're also where it's a season where we have this unique proclivity to care about stuff. And that's always a challenge for Christians. We're in this world, but we're not of it. We're called to seek the good of the city in which we've been placed, but we're called to serve God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And so that, that connection of, of what should we have, what should we long for, what stuff is ours, is actually very much at the heart of Paul's teaching here in the book of Philippians. As a Christian, what is the inheritance? What is the treasure? What is the prize? What is it that you're striving towards? And quite frankly, how do you get it? Now, interesting, there's going to be three points Paul starts at the end of the story. He does this frequently. He's a very gifted teacher to get your attention. So he's going to start with the end of the race. He's at the end of the story. He's going to move back to the beginning of the story. And a little bit like algebra, which I apologize if math is not your favorite equation. It's not mine, my favorite subject. But once we have the beginning and the end, we can solve for X, which is how God wants us to live in this world. So we'll look at the, at the end, the beginning, and then we'll look at this race that God calls us to, to attain to this prize. So starting in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this. There's something that Paul's looking forward to. What is this referring to? That I am already perfect. Well, we have to jump earlier, just a verse or two earlier, to see what Paul's referring to. He says, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and here's what Paul wants, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So then Paul says, it's not that I've already obtained the resurrection from the dead or that I'm already perfect, 
but I press on to make it my own. Which is to say that the animus for Paul is what he will have in the end. That's why he starts with the end. Now, the resurrection is a big subject, but it's like the incarnation, one that should probably dominate our minds more than just one day, one week, one month, a year. Here are some things that, that the Bible broadly promises in the resurrection. One, new life, right? As the Bible proclaims, where grave is thy victory, where, where death is thy sting. Uh, the passing of the mortal body is not the end of the immortal soul. So at the resurrection from the dead, not only will we be alive, because we'll already be conscious, present before the Lord, but when the body is resurrected, you will have a new life. The Bible says, no eye is seen, nor ear is heard, nor heart of mine imagined how glorious it is to have this kind of life. C.S. Lewis actually compared this life to the shadow. This life is what's dimly. This life only has the form. Real life, that which we were made for, is only after the resurrection of the dead and God's eternal kingdom. So we're looking forward to a life without pain. This is God's promise in Revelation 21. A, a, a life without sorrow. A life without tears. A life without failure. These are obviously compelling things to anyone who's lived in this world for more than an hour. I desire to live in a world free from pain and suffering. I, I desire to live in a world free from evil. It's another punishment. That there will be no injustice. That the weak will no longer suffer. That the poor and the needy will no longer lack. We look forward to that. Not only free from evil, free from suffering, free from evil, free from my own sin. Which is the greatest evil and suffering because it's that which separates me from my God. And so one day we will have in the resurrection... Not now, Paul says, I've not attained it, but he's looking forward earnestly to just being free from his sin. And I think the more we grow in our faith, the more that might become one of the most precious promises in heaven. That I would stop sinning against my wife. That I would stop sinning against my kids, my church, my brothers and sisters, people made in the image of God. It will be wonderful to be free from my old man. We will be reunited with the household of God forever. And that's a tremendous blessing. It's not an accidental blessing. It's not a collateral blessing. But God desires for his people to live with him forever. That's what he made in the garden. Was you and other family members in Jesus' household having fellowship forever. It's one of the main blessings that we're reunited with those who are in Christ. And then of course, the most blessed thing about the resurrection of the dead is that we share in the hope written by Job. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Job, it was most likely the first book of the Bible written. We know that there are things that happened before the book of Job in the first couple chapters of Genesis. But we also know that Genesis was written by Moses, who lived a good deal after Job. So Job is our earliest kind of recording of scripture, most likely. And at the very center part of it, when Job is dealing with everything we just talked about, the suffering of this world, his own sin and his failures, his lack of faith in God, the loss of beloved family members, his children. When Job is dealing with all the terrible in this world and he's looking forward, the greatest Job has is this in Job 19. That though my flesh will fail, though I will die, with my eyes I will see my Redeemer stand upon the earth. In my flesh, in my flesh, Job says, I will see him. So the greatest hope of the resurrection, and none of these things are set against each other. Free from pain, free from suffering, free from sin, Reunited, But the greatest thing, Job says, is that I get to see Jesus with my own eyes. 
And although Jesus has told us it is better, blessed are those who believe without saying, we also know the promises that one day we will see. Right? We will behold with our own eyes the God who's loved us. And that's the greatest, greatest gift in heaven, is to be present with Jesus every day for the rest of your life eternal. Now, that's a pretty good treasure. I think we agree. But Paul says you, you can't think about how to live in this world if you are not constantly thinking about that world which is to come. That treasure is what animates you. That's the stuff, to put it in a bad parlance. That's the stuff that Christians strive after. That's the treasure. Now, an illustration that the Bible frequently uses is an inheritance, and that's beautiful. Paul says that I know who is guarding my inheritance, and it's Jesus, and it's secure. And all of these riches can be thought of, right? They're all on the, the giant treasure pile that Jesus has won for us, freedom from want and sin and failing and presence with him. It's all part of the treasure, but a specific kind of inheritance, I think that Paul is, is saying that we can kind of use as an illustration this morning, is when an heir to a throne inherits a crown. And now I know you're all good Christians. You're thinking, hold on, Jesus is the king. He gets the crowns. And that's true. But I would remind you that there are multiple times, several times in the Bible, in First Peter and in Timothy and multiple times in Revelation, when God decides to reward his people with different crowns. But what he's always rewarding is his work, his promises in the people. And if you look at the people who receive the crowns, it's those who have sought this treasure above everything else. Most notably, the martyrs who were rewarded the crown because they wanted this treasure more than any other treasure in this world. Elders and deacons, it says, have crowns because they have given themselves to the service. Bible also says all who rejoice in what? The Lord's appearing. This final future thing will receive a crown. And now that's actually a pretty popular cultural metaphor, right? There are a lot of movies, specifically a lot of like Hallmark movies this time of year. I'm not judging you. There are a lot of movies where suddenly someone discovers that they're the heir to a lost kingdom. Right, And the whole movie is this, what does it mean to be a monarch and to receive this thing with no value? And what's most interesting to me is how the longing for this treasure is built into the human heart. Because in every one of those movies, a man or a woman inherits untold riches, billions of dollars. They inherit untold authority. They're the sovereign over a nation. They have a new family. They have a new inheritance. But in all of these movies and all these stories, it's always a poison pill. Because the kingdoms of this world cannot satisfy. And the crown that's laid up for you in heaven, there's no poison pill. There's no drawback. There's no problem with the inheritance. It doesn't hurt your life like traveling to some... It is only a real crown. The Bible says that is unfading. It is imperishable and it is waiting for you. And it's yours, and this is the most powerful thing, like a crown by your birthright. Because by Jesus' blood, you are now sons and daughters of God. So we might ask our kids, right, as Protestants, do you deserve to go to heaven? And they're probably going to say no. And that's a very good answer, nine out of ten times. But if you think about it in terms of belonging to Jesus, and we ask, do I deserve the treasures of heaven? The answer in Christ is yes. Because of what he's done for me, because he took away all of my sin, because he gave me all of his righteousness, because he's left this for me in heaven as my inheritance, then more powerfully than any heir of any kingdom in this world, that is ours and it is waiting for us. And there's no poison pill, there's no fading, there's nothing other than wonderful inheritance in Jesus. And so Paul says, that's everything to him. 
right? Indeed, in verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of this, of, of, of not only freedom and life and family, but for the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ as my Lord, for seeing him and having us. So that means everything else is rubbish, which makes sense when you have that kind of treasure. So Paul says you have to start with the end. If you're going to run the race, you have to know what goal you're running towards. There's no poison pill. There's no fading. There's no drawbacks. It's just the riches of Christ forever. Then he goes on to the beginning. So I'm going towards this goal. This is my inheritance. This is the crown. Jesus has bought me for it. I don't have it yet. It's in the future. So I have to run towards it. Why? So he's going to go back to the beginning. Why do I press towards that future? And he says in verse 12, because Jesus Christ has made me his own. And I kind of spoiled this point with the last one. This is the beginning. Is we, we, we have received these things because of Christ's merit. Because he's done them for us. And Paul contrasts that in the, in the previous section with his own merit. Right? He says, if anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here are all the reasons why I should have deserved this treasure in the beginning. At the beginning of my story, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But just like Paul says, you have to keep the end in mind if you want to run the race. You have to know how it started. Paul says, that's not how it starts. It only starts by Christ alone. For his sake, I have suffered loss of all these things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Here's how it starts. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness from God that depends on faith. So if we know where we're going, we need to know how the race started. By the way, how we were entered into this race at all. Now, if you've ever run a race, I do not run races. I think they're wonderful. I probably should. I'm not a distance runner, but it, you're probably familiar with them. Even if you get into like a kid's front run, they, they get the little paper sign that's stapled to their chest, right? That's part of the reason as a kid I never ran was it just looked like they just kind of stapled them to the kids. And I thought, if you have these little signs, it has a number, one, two, seven, four, five, right? And that means you get to run the race. So Jesus, Paul's trying to tell you, before we talk about what it means like to run this race, to be a Christian, you have to know where you're going, that it's already there for you. But you also have to know what allowed you to enter this race in this first place. And the only thing on the sign of the Christian runner is Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that gets you in the race in the first place. And if that's true, that means you can't lose entrance in this race. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you receive him only by faith, he says again and again, specifically in Galatians, who has tricked you into thinking that being in this race is dependent on who you are or what you do? Right? He says the only reason. Let's go through. He says faith. Faith is what receives Jesus Christ. But faith is not what saves us. Faith is what receives our salvation. What saves us is the free grace and love of God in Christ. So there's only faith. Then there's only grace. There's only this free gift. The very last words Jesus speaks in the Bible in Revelation 22 are this. To all who are thirsty, I tell you to come. Without payment. Without payment, come and drink of my living water. And so the only reason you're in the race is because of faith. But the only reason you have faith is because God gave it to you in grace freely. And we can even ask this if we're going to do our Socratic dialogue. Why do you have grace? 
uh, one of my favorite hymns. It's in uh, our Psalter hymnal. Uh, How sweet and awesome is the place. And it says, with one heart and voice, we join in the song and we cry, Lord, why was I a guest? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come, why was I a guest? And the Bible only ever gives one reason. Why were you the one who has faith? Why are you the one who Christ calls and changes and stands and puts in this race and puts, gives you that prize? And the only answer that God ever gives is because he loves you. This is love that while you were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Right? And so Paul's saying you have to know what's in front of you to run the race. Right? You also have to know why you're here. It's because of faith, grace, love, and then ultimately, <laughs> the same reason for the future, it's just Jesus Christ. Everything finds its fullness in him, including your entrance in the race, your identity. And I think the good illustration for this is a common one. And it's one we see a lot at Christmas. This isn't a Christmas first, but I'm fitting it in there. It's the picture of an infant child. An infant child who is so completely and totally dependent on others to provide for them that they don't even understand how it's happening. If we were magically able to speak to a three-year-old baby, what would come out is not, oh, I know my mother, and she needs to give me the calories in order to strengthen my muscles. None of that. So it's not the strength of your faith. There are things you have to believe, right? The only name under which people are saved is Jesus Christ. You have to confess Christ. But it's not the strength, the wisdom, the power of your confession, any more than it is the infant's cry that feeds them. We are wholly dependent on a love that far surpasses even that of a mother to a child. We are every bit as helpless, but we rest even more secure in our love of God. So that's the end and that's the beginning. So now he's going to do a race. And that's all verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this future thing or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own, beginning and end. Now he's going to say again, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own because it's so important for him for the church in Philippi and for us today to remember that we have not made this our own yet. We are not in what the author of Hebrews calls the heavenly city, the city that can't be touched, the city of Zion. We are not there right now. Because of that, now we can solve for X. Because we know where we're going and how we've gotten here and how we're in the race and we'll stay in the race only because of Jesus forever, now let's ask what it looks like to run the race. And here's what he says in verse 13. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies behead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, a better preacher than me could probably do a sermon series on every two words in that passage. Chris and I were talking about that when we were trying to name the sermon. He came up with like a dozen names for the sermon, and all of them sounded like Puritan book titles. Paul is a very, very, very gifted writer. But overwhelmingly, this race, if we know where we're going and why we're here, what this race does is it knocks aside the two tendencies of humanity. And in this, a book I'm sure you've already heard, that your elders have already mentioned to you, but there was an excellent book that came out some years ago called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. And through the lens of a Presbyterian theological dispute, and as a Presbyterian, I can tell you we love having theological disputes... <laughs> But at least we're allowed to give everyone else something to learn from it. Um, he points out that, and, it, and both of those are present in the Philippian church in this passage. Human beings have two tendencies as we're running this race. One is to fall into perfectionism, which is why Paul has to say twice, I have not made this my own yet. 
I am not perfect. And the other word we have for perfectionism is legalism. And that's the word we're more common, familiar with. But I want to suggest to you that, and legalism is a biblical word, it's very fine, but we also know that it's kind of become um, a word out of our control, right? And it can also happen that sometimes any Christian who just kind of cares about following the Bible becomes called a legalist. So I think the, a really helpful word is perfectionist. Not that we don't strive for perfection, we're about to get to that. But the question is, what makes you a Christian and is it being perfect? And that is no. So that's why Paul said, I'm not perfect. I haven't made this my own yet. And that was the call of the Pharisees, was this says, if you are perfect, then you will be righteous. But again and again, Paul says, there is no one righteous under the law. Or, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Do you imagine having begun by faith, you could now be perfect by the law? So he's calling out is this human tendency to think that perfection wins us the love of God, as if it was possible. That we already are perfect, that we don't sin, or that we should expect that of people. That we should accept that's only Christian. The only real Christians are those who never sin. On the other end is hedonism. And often the word for that is licentiousness. We'll say legalism, licentiousness, perfectly good phrases. And there's some nice alliteration, right? Pastors love alliteration, so I should be on board with that. But I think hedonism is helpful because if you know the, the tendency of it, hedonism is the idea that you should pursue your own pleasures above anything else, right? And this is perhaps, at this time and place, a temptation that we as Americans have to fight very precisely. In a sense, in, in broader American culture, we are almost stewing in this kind of hedonism, much in the same way that your Thanksgiving turkey a couple of weeks ago might have been stooped in brine for about a couple days to keep it fresh. Hedonism has no such benefits, Right? It doesn't give you a better turkey. It doesn't give you anything. But we're, we're stewing in, in America. We're stewing in a culture that loudly says, with any megaphone nearby, do what makes you happy. Find your own truth. The only thing you can do is make yourself happy. But Paul also says that's impossible because he says, I'm forgetting everything else. And we're going to go back in to see how he throws both of these things off. He's thrown off perfectionism. If anyone's perfect, it's me, he says, but I'm not. But he also throws off hedonism. when he says, I count everything as loss. For the surpassing worth. And what we can do as Christians, Sinclair Ferguson points out, is we can think that we need to balance that scale. A pinch of legalism or hedonism, right? A pound of of legalism or perfectionism. And it's our job to balance it out. Add a little bit more hedonism, add a little and we'll eventually get the middle ground and be a good person. But we just went through. What's the point of the end? All of these benefits, the ultimate point is Jesus Christ. What's the point of beginning? Grace, faith, love. Ultimately, it's Jesus Christ. And so what Sinclair Ferguson pointed out, what Paul is saying here, is that neither perfectionism nor hedonism are the answer at all. They're actually the same problem. They're not two sides of a seesaw we have to balance. Both of them have veered away from Jesus Christ being the only hope and source for humanity. They're the same problem because they're finding this race, this, this being a Christian, being a human being, they're finding the answer as being something other than Jesus's. So that's why he said, you have to know you will belong to Jesus forever. You were bought by Jesus. That's why you're here. And so this answer that it's straining forward towards what? Just the upward call of belonging to God in Christ Jesus. Now, we should note here carefully as we start to wrap up that he in no way promises, I press forward toward the goal for being totally free from all illness or sadness. I press toward the goal 
for the prize of having all of the wealth and provision that I need. I press onward toward the goal for rising in wisdom, stature among men, and being loudly proclaimed as a wonderful person in the courts of the city. I press onward toward the goal for having all authority on this planet and controlling everything that happens. None of those things are promised. But the answer has to be the same. If the end is Christ and the beginning is Christ, then the race has to be belonging to Christ. So then what he goes on to say is that means he forgets what lies behind. And this is where I think it gets really potent for me, for us. When he means everything, he means everything. He means everything. And Philippians, we have to realize, is, is written most likely and pretty clearly when he is in jail. Philippians is a letter written toward the end of Paul's life. And if we think of what's happened before, we're actually talking about potentially decades, two decades of Christian. Paul has been around for a while now. And the book of Acts moves at this breakneck speed. It doesn't go all the way to his death, but it moves really quick. And we can think, yeah, man, Paul was a Christian for like six months. He was busy. He was earning his Southwest reward miles. He was all over the place. Then he died and he went to heaven. Paul ministers for a long time, right? There are years and years where Paul is ministering. So when he says, when he says he is forgetting everything behind him, what is he forgetting? Everything. He's, he's forgetting showing up to Jerusalem and being one of the few men, the apostles, who are leading the church in the Jerusalem Council. He's forgetting writing the book of Romans, the most masterful treaty on theology that anyone has ever written, ever. Paul's forgetting planting how many dozens of churches. Paul is forgetting leading how many hundreds of people to Jesus Christ. To be sure, Paul is forgetting being a Jew. He's forgetting being a, 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 a persecutor of the church. He's forgetting his pride. He's forgetting whatever thorn in his flesh he talks about in the Bible. If it's sin, if it's physical ailment. He's forgetting all those bad things, but he's also forgetting everything. Because it's behind him. Because he's not identifying himself, even by his fruit, but solely by Jesus Christ alone. And so if we're going to talk about the upward call of God then we have to talk that it is the only call of God to Christians. The upper call is the only call. And I don't know that it's put anywhere prettier without the aid of the Holy Spirit than in the Heidelberg Catechism, which you have in your Psalter hymnal. And so we're in this middle ground. We're in this life on this earth. How do we honor God? Paul says you have to know where you're going. You have to know where you've been. But the question of Heidelberg Catechism is, Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? What's the only thing that can help you run this right? And the answer is, that I am my Savior's. That I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ is the only answer to that question. And that means you really do have to forget everything. I think the illustration of this, and it's funny because Jesus uses this illustration all the time. Another illustration of this, I think, would be if you watch the way children play. I don't mean to be overly modeling or hallmark with that. But there is a freedom. There is a very radical freedom that children have before they begin to understand the plight that they've been placed in by being worn in this, born in this post-Adam and Eve world. We look at the freedom, and, and, and Jesus says multiple times, to such as these belongs the kingdom of God. Right? He calls us to have the faith of a child. And the Bible verse that he passes as he walks into Jerusalem to ascend to the final week of his life to save all of humanity is Psalm 8. Out of the mouths and children's of babes, mouths of children and babes will come the praise of God forever. And so I think it's really powerful to see 
how a, a child will, will run after something without any distraction, right? If, if they haven't seen their mom or dad in a while, if they haven't seen their friend, if they just haven't seen a swing on a playset for a while. I'm not saying their loves are rightly ordered as kids. They're not sinless at all. But there is a, a freedom, not a reckless abandon, not a foolishness. There is a freedom to which they will run toward that which they love. And, yeah, sometimes it can be dangerous in this world, right? Because maybe they run across the street. Maybe they run into a dog. Maybe they run into a pole. But, and, and if you've been a Christian for a while, you've felt that experience. You're running and you hit something and it hurts. But that freedom to run after Jesus with that strength is the only thing that can flow out of knowing where you're going and how you got here in the first place. And that's the combination. Then run. Then run. Let those of us who are mature think this way. He goes, if some of you think otherwise, Paul's very gracious. If some of you think otherwise, think about it. If you are mature, think this way and only let us hold true to what we have attained. What's the only thing you've attained? It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ that got you here. It's Jesus Christ where you're going. And that means everything else. Everything else. And we have to be radically faithful as a family, as a family of God, to be encouraging each other to this end. That we have to call each other to leave everything behind. Right? Now, if you jump in front of your friend, you're like, hey, Donald, you need to quit your job and give up your family. No. Right? What's the only rule to direct us in faith and life? And it's the word of God. Right? The Bible doesn't say abandon your family. The Bible doesn't say give up your job. But holding fast, what Paul said, holding fast we obtained is this. And so it's our job as the church now, if we all are only going to Jesus, we're only here because of Jesus, the upward call is calling each other to lay everything aside and to be willing to have radically humble conversations because of what we're about to attain. So we started by talking about Christmas stuff. Um, some Christmas stuff is okay. We probably give into it a bit too much, at least my family. No condemnation in Christ Jesus, but we're a big Christmas family. When you think about how radical this sounds to lay everything aside, to completely devote yourself to following God, and when you're scared to go to your brother or sister and say, help me, help me lose everything. Help me lose my life that I might have it forever in Jesus. Or when you think about going to your brother and sister and being like, I want to help you, so maybe you need to lay down this thing, right? If you're in a competitive bocce ball league, I picked that because I don't think it exists. But if you're in a competitive bocce ball league and that means that you miss church every Sunday and you miss every prayer meeting, right? The call, the call is the amazing glory of where we're going, what Jesus has done for us. Everything gets laid aside. Remember this, the stuff that you're calling your brothers and sisters to is glorious. It is wonderful. There is nothing that is lost in following Jesus Christ and there is everything that's gained. So when we call each other to this upward call, it's not perfectionism. It's not hedonism. It's belonging to Jesus Christ with all of our body and all of our soul and all of our might and all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you see our hearts and they are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. And so, Lord, we ask that you would remind us again of our great union with Jesus Christ, done before the foundations of the world, that you have saved us, you have loved us because of your own love, that you bought us without money, that we have all of you simply because of your free grace. Lord, every time we wonder, 
let wander, let the brothers and sisters of this congregation remind each other of how we start. And Lord, when we run into the difficulties of this world, even in this season, which is so much festivity, there can also be so much sadness and suffering. Lord, let's, this congregation, let me, let us as brothers and sisters remind each other of what lies ahead of us. That that is so overwhelmingly beautiful and rich that nothing compares to what awaits us in heaven. And so, Lord, last of all, we ask that you would strengthen us to run this race. It is an unimaginable gift that you have called us to belong to you. And so, Father, strengthen us in that race. Let us cast aside every weight, everything that's behind us, that we might be found faithful in Jesus Christ, that today's grace would never be enough, and that we might strive for even more of Jesus Christ in our lives tomorrow. Together, as your children, only by grace and love, we ask for all these things in Jesus' holy name.